I mean, I think that the way I cope, I think about having a vast network with whom I'm interconnected and all of us focusing on slightly different parts of the brokenness. And I have the luxury of also having students. Shana Tova. You're listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago, exploring inspired, down-to-earth Judaism in conversation. Today, we conclude our three-part series, Diving into the High Holidays. In this episode, Rabbi Dina Cowens is in conversation with her friend and mentor, Rabbi Stephanie Rusquet. Rabbi Rusquet has made her career in the Jewish social justice sector, serving in leadership positions at the American Jewish World Service, Auburn Theological Seminary, and the Avodah Jewish Service Corps, just to name a few. She is an alumna of the Jewish Theological Seminaries and Columbia University's joint program, the Davidson School of Education, and the JTS Rabbinical School. She currently serves as the Associate Dean of the JTS Rabbinical School and the Executive Director of the Hendel Center for Ethics and Justice, where she directs field education and entrepreneurial endeavors that raise the scope, skills, and profile of justice work and community organizing. For contemporary rabbis. What you're about to hear is a conversation about social justice as it applies to tshuva, or repentance, which is the holy work of the high holiday season, and how these ideas and practices help us move toward a new year with vision and commitment not only to better ourselves, but the world around us. Here's the conversation. Hey there, Stephanie. It is so nice to be sitting here talking to you. I feel so honored to be sitting with the Associate Dean of the Rabbinical School at JTS and the Executive Director of the JTS Hendel Center for Ethics and Justice, and also just an amazing teacher and mentor and person. Um, And I'm so excited we're going to get to have this conversation about preparing for the high holidays. So what's on your heart and mind as you start preparing for the high holidays now? Well... I think trying to create space, particularly since they're coming so early this year, which people always say they're inconveniently timed, but it does feel that with it being at the tail end of the summer, it feels like you could just rush right into the beginning of school and being deliberate about making time regularly to be intentional and think about how I want to do things differently, how I want to be in community differently, how I want to show up um, individually from moment to moment, what I want to learn this year, taking stock of what I have learned this year. I'm doing all the things I do every year, but I feel like because it's so early, there has to be a lot of intention and because this has been such a strange year. So in some ways, being more home-based has been how we've been all year and making, and it's been a very, a year for a lot of reflection and also a lot of coping. <laughs> and I would say being specific about making time to be reflective um, feels essential this year. Yeah, I get that. Some years it feels like we get this reflective time as we're sort of like coming back in from the summer and now it's happening as we're out there. I was working on my high holiday sermon from the side of a pool the other day, like a very bizarre sort of experience. Is there some kind of change that you're trying to create or looking forward to in the coming year? Lots of changes, I would say. And they are from the immediate to the global. So on an immediate level, I would say that 
like one thing that we did this year for school for orientation is we launched virtually. I think we are now figuring out how to how to live hybrid lives, which we didn't do so much before. And if you weren't present in person, then you weren't together. And so we did an LO launch and we gathered on Rosh Chodesh, we blew Shofar, we offered students because Rosh Hashanah is going to be before school starts. We offered students a series of videos from their teachers with Torah and learning in their field related to the Chagim and introspection. So that was a new thing that we did, like inspired by the circumstances that we've been in and what we've learned in the past year. I'm thinking a lot about conflict. I'm thinking about the ways in which we've been living these strange existences this year. On the one hand, we've been mostly in our homes. And so you can surround yourself with people who share your really particular perspective on the world if you want. And then lots of us have also been relating online. (laughs) Facebook is like a great place for either only hearing things that are exactly what you agree with or having big fights with people who say things that you don't agree with. (laughs) But there's like frequently not a lot of gray in between. And it's coming out in lots of different ways in how people handle safety precautions, like everything. So I'm feeling like we need a lot of work on conflict this year in particular, and wanting to be a person who expands my own range of possible ways to react to conflict, um, to build resilience in myself and in our students and in communities that I'm a part of. So I would say I'm sort of focusing both on the micro, how everything that any of us does has some sort of ripple effect, even if we can't imagine it. So some personal growth and also thinking about how we be in community in in ways that are healthier. That sounds like an amazing Elul. Is there a particular high holiday prayer or practice or something that you're thinking about in this sort of conflict? Mediation is the wrong word. Like living with conflict seems more like what you're talking about. Is there something in the high holidays that you find particularly influences your your thinking? Well, I continue to love the Hineni prayer, even though it's really, you know, by the Shalich Sibor, the person who is going to daven on behalf of everybody, first sort of standing there with great humility and also confidence. Like you have to hold both at the same time, which I guess is my theme for this year is we don't have the luxury of only feeling one thing. You have to simultaneously be humble and realize that you are not the center of the universe and you are a small piece of a much bigger thing happening. And also every single person has to play their part. So that is the Shaliyah Sibor's part, but I think it's something that I'm regularly thinking about. Like institutions are filled with challenges. Countries are filled with challenges. Communities are filled with challenges. And finding the way to have humility and say, like, I probably can't solve all of this myself. And also, I have no business not stepping up and being grown up in this and participating in a solution, not just demanding it from others. So I love that prayer. And I think it's one that's resonating deeply for me this year. Yeah, I think the first time that I led high holiday services saying the Hinani prayer, it's this moment where, like, the leader stands up and says, like, here I am and I am nothing. And the word sheliach tzibor, which we use as sort of the Hebrew term for prayer leader, literally means the messenger or the emissary of the community. And I remember having this moment 
my first time leading high holidays was actually at JTS. And I was standing in front of a bunch of my teachers, like supposed to be their emissary. And I had this moment of like, everyone here is carrying something in their heart. How am I supposed to be the emissary for all of those things? You know, and I think that's that's such a powerful moment for a person who finds themselves in a place of leadership. But I think it's also a powerful moment to stand there in community and feel like, does anyone fully see me? Is anyone fully with me in what I'm going through? I'm wondering, like, is there is there a way that we can be there for each other to show up for each other, to pray for each other's needs? Look, I think a perspective of like, I have to both pray for myself and also I want my Shaliyah Sibur to pray on my behalf is like, it's actually kind of related to what I just said about having an obligation to both play your role and also understand the smallness of the role that you play, no matter who you are. But I first understood um, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum at CBS Congregation Beit Simchat Torah has a practice, I think, of really sort of taking part of her vacation um, during the month of Elul in order to reflect and to be ready. And in some ways, it's like, maybe that's not vacation. That's Maybe that's professional development. Maybe you don't have any reason to think that you can show up as the emissary for the whole community if you haven't done the reflecting time. And so, I don't know, I'm just, I haven't thought about that so much before, but maybe it should be in clergy contracts that actually <laughs> you're required to contemplate. You're required to have some sort of like, Silent retreat or retreat, maybe not silent, in advance of the Chagim, if you're going to show up and lead. Uh, and that's so not how we act in the world. We act in the world as, as, as if everybody should do business and, as usual, right until they, mo- they show up at the moment to have this whole ability to stand there and pray on behalf of the community. And I, I don't think you can do that if you don't make the space to contemplate. And not just clergy, but also like, how can we be expected to show up for other people if we are so broken ourselves? And also, you know, I'm thinking we live in this sort of crazy time where we blow the shofar every morning in Elul to sort of wake our souls up to the transformation that we need to do and that we are expecting to happen on on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And this Elul and last year, I feel like every time that shofar blew, it was calling me to something different. So right now, as you and I are recording this, there is what seems like a refugee crisis unfolding in Afghanistan. But just two days ago, the crisis that I would have told you about is the wildfires burning. And three days before that, I would have told you something different. And I'm I'm sort of struggling with how to show up for justice in the world. Like there's so many things pulling our attention. And every day it feels like another thing. How do we balance that? Like, I got to work on myself. I got to work on my own community, my own city, but also there's so many other pressing things. And how do I balance all of the different things that I feel like I need to be doing, but I want to do them all well. And I can't. Look, I agree. (laughs) And I am also experiencing my own sense of overwhelm and disappointment and shame about all of the things happening in the world right now. And I mean, I think that the way I cope, I think about having a vast network with whom I'm interconnected and all of us focusing on slightly different parts of the brokenness. And I have the luxury of also having students. So it means that I get to deploy students to go work at Dayenu on climate justice, for instance, for a year, which both has the opportunity to accomplish the work that they're going to accomplish this year and also center 
uh, environmental justice as part of their emerging roles as clergy and all of the people that they're going to impact. So I think personally, I have always looked for roles where I could be in a place where I'm able to influence a broader agenda than I could ever do on my own. And still, even if they are the most active environmental justice rabbis you ever saw in your life, still Afghanistan would be happening, still Haiti would be happening, still the environment would be falling apart. So like in some ways, it comes back to Hinnany, right? It's like you have to remember you have a very small role and you can't jerk it. But it's, it is for sure overwhelming and scary. It sounds a little bit in the way that you're talking about sort of like doing justice work by supporting other people and do, doing justice work. It feels a little theological to me almost. Like it somehow happened in the last week that I've heard this story four times about the guy who like it starts flooding, it starts raining and flooding and everyone's like evacuate. And he's like, no, no, God will take care of me. And then someone comes by with a truck and is like, come on, get in, I'll get you out. And the guy's like, God will take care of me. You know, and then the waters rise and he climbs up to his roof and someone comes with a boat and is like, get in. And he's like, God will take care of me. And then they come with a helicopter and he's like, God will take care of me. And then he dies and he goes to heaven and he greets God and he and God both are like, what the hell? You know, the guy's like, God, where were you? Why? I was a man of perfect faith. Why didn't you save me? And God's like, what the hell, dude? I sent you a truck and a boat and a helicopter. What were you doing? That this sort of sense of like, the theology is that we will take care of each other, right? Like it's not believing in one outside thing that's going to solve all of our problems. It's believing that each and every one of us, which contains the divine spark, is going to take on a different thing. I'm wondering how that like resonates with you. Well, I do love that story. I have been finding myself drawn to experimenting with Musar practice recently. I think because I do think that the way society functions is a result of the way that individuals function. And we're kind of needing a reset of some sort. And so if Musar is about refining your own spirit and soul and behavior, then if everyone were doing it, something would be collectively different in society. And so two of the principles in Musar, one, one is about faith, right? It's bitachon. It's like having the sense that somehow you're not alone in this. Things will change. Not that your individual prayers will be answered, but that, that you're not alone, I think, is what the faith is about. And simultaneously, there's a practice around choice points about creating opportunities to make right choices regularly and that no individual choice usually is like the defining decision about a direction something's going to go. We all make lots and lots and lots and lots of little choices along the way. Even from, you know, before we started recording, I think you told the story about buying breakfast for a friend who had dropped their breakfast just because you wanted to bring some generosity into the world and you wanted to take care of your friend who was feeling sad and you could do it. You were right there. And so I think there's a ripple effect to all of these little actions. And I think that we're living at a time where there's a lot of hardness in the world. There's also a lot of grace, but I think we have to focus on being people who are grace bringers, people who make lots of little choices along the way to be kinder and more generous and more justice oriented, but also more generous and more graceful. So I think I, I believe in having faith and also 
making choices regularly that are going to will into being the kind of world that you want to live in. One of my favorite moments of the high holidays actually is at Yisker, the service in which we remember people who came before us, who you know we wish were standing there with us that day, but aren't. And there's this line in Yisker that was like clearly written by like a synagogue president, you know, that's like, as you remember these people, I commit to donating in their memory, which like at first is like icky shul politics. You know, it's like, like I have to give money because I'm thinking, but then it's like, no, actually, like, how can I bear out this person's values in the world because of the ways that they impacted me? And I, you know, I, I like to think of not just the people who are not in my life physically anymore, but just all of these people who shaped me, how am I going to bear their lessons out in the world? And I love that our high holiday liturgy prompts us to have this moment. That's like, yo, it's also not just all about you and your own journey. It's about all of the people who shaped your journeys so that you could go on this one. And I'm hearing also like the ways that that is happening for you in the the opposite sense of all these students who you're impacting, who are going to go out and change the world because of the ways that you've impacted them. It, It feels like such a a wonderful connective sort of thing of like you are impacting the world because of people who changed you. And there are people who are changing the world because of the ways you've changed them. Is there anyone whose memory you particularly feel tied to enliven in the world? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'll say a few people. I'm first of all, my dad who died pretty young and, you know, I've told this story before, but um, when we were kids, he would, I imagine there was a commercial on TV that had this as the slogan, but somehow it became part of our family, you know, script. And when he would tuck us in at night, he would say, what did you do today to make the world safe for democracy? And then he would just listen, which for me, I don't know. It was a question I ruminated on a lot. And still I'm curious about the ways in which my own actions are making the world safe for democracy. And I know that there's like a lot of complexity to that, right? Like the whole Afghanistan war, (laughs) I think would be like a bunch of people trying to figure out how they made the world safe for democracy and failing miserably. So it is like far harder to do and no one person does it. And there are a lot of missteps along the way, but the question still holds resonance for me. But I also would say that Rabbi Rachel Cowan, who basically did like I would say started and fostered and nurtured many of the the things in the Jewish community that are about so like making social justice more like available as a way of living at your Judaism and also combining it with spiritual practice. Um, so when she worked at the Nathan Cummings Foundation, she really seeded most of the Jewish social justice work that we know today as being possible ways to live your Jewish life and act for justice in the world. And then at some point she left that work in order to found the Institute for Jewish Spirituality and always said, like, you can't accomplish justice by solely being angry. Like you actually have to also have compassion for yourself, quietness, the ability to reflect and to fuel the justice work with love and spiritual practice. And Um, I don't always achieve it, but on my best days, I try to emulate her. Um, And I would say, you know, my grandmother was also um, somebody significant in my life who, while she never had a lot of money, I think the Sadaka she felt most proud of having made the choice to support was then Jewish Funds for Justice, which then became Ben the Art. But she was really ahead of her time and also 
sort of played a role in shaping how I see the world. She also did have a philosophy that children should be able to draw on the walls, which she allowed my dad and his uncle and my uncles to do. And my children spent the weekend trying to, you know, remove some of the crayon and pen from the wall (laughs) now that they're 10. (laughs) But they seem to have inherited that gene and love for creativity. There's a tradition in Judaism when you speak about someone who has passed to say, may their memory be a blessing. I actually want to change that and say, it is clear that their memories are blessings in your being in the world. And that's something that I think about a lot when I put on my grandpa's tefillin in the morning, who, you know, he was a person who shaped who I am in such deep ways. And I, every morning I put them on and I say to myself, like, I am going to be a blessing in the world because of the ways that he taught me to be a blessing. You know, like to me, that feels like such a a high holiday meditation of like, I'm going to go be a blessing in the world because of all of these people who taught me how to be a blessing, who are a blessing to me. So thank you for sharing those memories with us. And they were blessings to us despite imperfections, like, which feels also important to say in this moment of both trying to be better humans in the next year and also recognizing that nobody's going to arrive at the Chagim and feel like, wow, I did everything I intended to do. And I acted in all the ways I intended to act. And probably next year also we will show up and not have done all the things we wished and that like your memory or your actions and your legacy can still be a blessing, even though we're sort of imperfect and broken. I mean, I want to close with a little discussion of spiritual practices because I think we've we shared before we started recording that you have recently taken on one of mine. One of my core spiritual practices is exercise, in particular running. And I think, you know, we're like two very justice-oriented female rabbis sitting here talking about making the world a better place and working on yourself. And I think I want to close this episode by talking about the different ways we take care of ourselves that involve showing up to community to pray and also all sorts of other things. So Stephanie, I just shared, like for me, going for a run as a spiritual practice, I am a better agent of justice and I'm a more compassionate and caring person in the world when I go for a run. And I've had to teach myself in this job where I give to others that if I don't go for a run every day or a bike ride or something, I actually will not be as good at being me in the world. Any other gifts to offer, ways to validate for people that your your self-care is spiritual and like self and world healing action? A few things. First of all, I would before this period, I would say yoga was a place where I found that like you could just be present. And I never wanted to be the yoga teacher ever, ever, ever. I always wanted somebody to tell me what to do. And to be in the poses was a way to sort of inhabit my body and allow whatever needed to come to come. But in the last three years, I would say I have like, there are three things that have changed, which is kind of neat because I'm 46 and like you start to have ideas about who you are in the world and how you do things in the world. So I was never really a bike rider. I learned how to ride a bike when I was a kid, but like I never really had a bike as a grown up, and I would never ride in the city. And somehow over the last few years, primarily because my kids were playing little league and the easiest way to get there was to ride the bike. I started riding city bike and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, an evangelist for city bike because I realized I can't, I don't, I am not such a good bike rider that I would ever listen to headphones or make a phone call or anything on the bike. When I'm on the bike, I am present. And it has turned out to be a highly meditative time for me because I'm just there in quiet. 
and I'm going somewhere, but I, but I'm only present and I'm paying attention to who's, you know, who's in the road, but it's very spiritual um, time for me. And it, and like Tefila is sort of what some of the backdrop is when I'm doing that. And then to my really great surprise over the last few weeks, I started running primarily in my house, occasionally outside. But if you'd ever asked me in a million years, like, okay, I figured out how to ride a bike and that was meditative time, but running, I would never be a runner. And A, I'm enjoying it. And also it's the kind of thing where I'm not checking my email. I'm not doing anything. I'm listening to music. So music is nourishing, but I'm also finding that the things that I'm thinking about are, I mean, I'm processing relationships, I'm processing what's happening in my life and in the world. And also I'm like doing my little preparation, like running, which I love that like at 46, I could still be surprised and learn new things and develop new ways of being in the world that I never, ever imagined. So who knows if we talk again in 10 years, I don't know what could come after, you know, running and bike riding, (laughs) but maybe there's something, maybe I'll be a mountaineering or something. (laughs) You're going to come to Chicago and run your first marathon with me. Oh my God. I really have trouble imagining it, but if I'm going to do it, that I will do it with you, (laughs) Dina. (laughs) But it's what you said. I'm going to take this as like maybe our closing spiritual lesson. I'm going somewhere being completely present in the moment, right? Like I'm not focused on the there. I'm focused on the right now, but I'm also not stagnant. I'm moving. And so I hope that all of you listening to this have a sense this high holidays and this Elul and this year that you are going somewhere and completely present in the moment getting there. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining me for that just like all these little nuggets of beauty and for sharing memories of Rabbi Rachel Cowan and your father and your grandmother and sharing your wisdom with us. I know I was so lucky to be your student and there are so many others who are so lucky to be your students. Dina, so nice to be together and I feel lucky to now be your student. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. You've been listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago a Jewish spiritual community and part of the Jewish Emergent Network. This was the third and final episode in our High Holiday series brought to you by the Rabbis of Mishkan to help you prepare for the new year. If you've enjoyed this episode or any other episodes, we encourage you to join us for the High Holidays this year in person at the Chicago History Museum. There are still some tickets left for Kol Nidre and for Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is sold out, but you can join us anytime for anything online through our live stream. To find more information about our programs, head over to mishkanchicago.org and follow us on Instagram or Facebook to be totally up to date. To support Contact High, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews improve our ratings and help new listeners find our show, and they let us know what you think about the show. Finally, this episode was produced by our fabulous team at Mishkan. Editing and production of this podcast is by Hannah Rehack, administrative assistance by Seth Torres, and editorial oversight by Director of Communications Ashley Donahue. Thank you for everything, Hannah Rehack, who has edited and produced these podcasts from the very beginning and is going on to a career in improv, and we wish you the best on your journey. Thank you for listening and Lishana Tova.